Don't be scared. This is the podcast that always leaves the light on. This is Monster Under the Bed, the podcast that takes some of the fears and myths in our society and busts them wide open. My name is Alar Tankler. Twenty years ago we had a war and uh, twenty years after we will be the part of European family. We are very happy, we hope that our uh, entrepreneur and uh, our economical situation will be better. Better life, Uh, perhaps not uh, for my generation but for uh, my sons and the the younger generations. Professional-wise I think it's going to be easier for young people to connect the other cultures and I think it's going to be very good for them. Many young people will find a job because we have very, very, very well educated young people, you know. I'm very satisfied. We're waiting for 10 years or so and work hard. We were always in Europe and now when we're in greater Europe, we are more sure, more opportunity for business, for exchange of people. We are becoming a part of a bigger, I don't know how to say, a bigger state or something like that and it's always a joy. Other countries will respect us more. We're not strong enough to be an island, so I think it will be good. We are very happy to be the 28th star of European Union. Okay, what did we just hear, Nicola? Who are these people? The people you just heard are ordinary citizens recorded on the streets of Zagreb back in 2013, just days before Croatia was set to become a member of the European Union. Okay. Now, I know you're a proud Croat, but I have to say I'm a bit confused. What does that have to do with today's episode? I thought we were going to talk about European Union costing too much. That's exactly what we will be doing, Alar. However, instead of going over whether some countries pay more money than they receive from the EU budget, I want us to look at this topic from a different perspective. I do kind of zone out the moment somebody starts talking numbers, so um, that sounds good. Don't worry, I'm going to tell you just how little we pay into the budget as individuals, but I'll also explain why the EU budget is not even the most important issue. Okay, I see your point, but how are we going to dismantle this myth and slay this monster, this idea that the EU is something to scare people with? We're going to focus on what the EU does for its citizens and let our audience decide whether the benefits outweigh its costs. So today on Monster Under the Bed... Is the EU a waste of money? Monster Under the Bed is a podcast from the European Investment Bank, the EU Bank. What we're doing is exploring different fears and beliefs people have, which are costing us as a society. So in each episode of the podcast, we will fight one imaginary monster under the bed and hopefully win the battle for a more rational way of doing things in the spheres of education, healthcare, climate, and many others. I'm Nicola and I work with Alar at the European Investment Bank. So that you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Monster Under the Bed on iTunes, Acast, Stitcher, Player FM, or wherever you get your podcasts. And let us know if you can think of a monster we should expose on future episodes. You can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Alar Tankler, A-L-L-A-R-T-A-N-K-L-E-R. Or you can just tag at EIB.
In the last few years, the EU budget has become a major topic of public discourse, whether in the media or in our neighborhood cafes. Something that once felt so remote has pretty much gone mainstream. And a lot of it has to do with Brexit, of course. True. People all over Europe are talking about the European Union like never before. And a lot of it has to do with how much the EU costs them and their countries. But I still get a feeling that not everybody really understands how the EU budget even works. I completely agree. I myself wasn't 100% on how the budget is decided, collected or spent. That is why I decided to talk to Mariusz Krukowski, who works on EU budget issues and Brexit, among other things, in the Brussels office of the European Investment Bank. Okay, so I think first what we need to answer is what the EU budget is. And I think the simplest explanation is that EU budget is policy instrument. Uh, and from this perspective, it does not uh, differ uh, too much from the national budget or even our own uh, home budgets. Uh, what is different is how it is uh, indeed decided, uh, collected and spent. So everything starts with the so-called uh, multiannual financial framework, which is uh, budget for EU budget for seven years. Every seven years, there is a um, proposal from the Commission based on the political priorities in the EU for next seven years, uh, presented to member states, to European Parliament. Leaders, so head of states and government, uh, representatives of member states, uh, plus uh, representative members of European Parliament, uh, sit together and discuss and decide First of all, what should be our priorities in the next uh, seven years and uh, how they should be financed. What is important here is to underline that not all EU priorities require uh, financing. I would even say that minority of priorities require financing because a lot uh, is decided uh, without a, any financing. Let's uh, give example of uh, roaming charges, yes? You don't need uh, EU budget resources in order to decrease the, the fee for roaming. It's regulation, it's legislation, and majority of, of priorities, of EU priorities, can be, can be decided without uh, and Im implemented without any financing. So if I got this right, the EU budget is not even the most important EU policy instrument. Don't get me wrong, it is important, but it is not the only way the European Union contributes to the life of its citizens. It is actually not even that big compared to some national budgets. For example, in 2017, Austria had a bigger budget than the whole EU. So did Belgium. The vice president of the European Investment Bank and former Finnish prime minister Alexander Stubb explains how big the budget actually is. First observation is that the EU budget is actually quite small in comparison to national 
government budgets. And the reason is very simple. The EU doesn't have so-called redistributive value. So it doesn't give you health care, it doesn't give you pensions, uh, it doesn't give you education, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's focused on other things. The rule of thumb is that the EU budget is about 1% of uh, the GDP of the whole EU area, whereas national budgets hover between 25 and 40%. Uh, of the national GDP. So you see that there's a colossal difference. The reason the budget is smaller is that unlike national budgets, which are mainly used to provide public services and fund social security systems, the EU budget is primarily used for investment. I think the basic thinking is that uh, the discussion on EU money is usually based on grants. So how much does a given country uh, get and how much does a given country put out? Are you a net contributor or a net receiver? And of course, if you're a farmer, the EU is very important. If you are a student or at a university doing research, the EU budget is very uh, important. If you're building roads around Europe, the EU budget is important. But for you and I, uh, it is a little bit less important because it doesn't touch us every day directly. It's much more interesting for you and I to look at how much do we pay tax for our municipality, how much do we pay tax to our country, and what do we get in return uh, for that tax. On the EU side, it's, it's, it's less tangible. It's about free travel, it's about low cost for roaming, it's about possibilities to uh, study in another country or work in another country, it's about a common money um, which is much easier to use than having many different currencies around. And those kinds of things, they sort of become normal at the end of the day. And that's why you don't think about it until someone in a newspaper says, oh no, the EU costs way too much. Look how much we're subsidizing the farmers. So it's, it's, it's sort of a catch-22. And Alar, I think this is the key point of the discussion on EU budget. It's not about the money. As mobile roaming and traveling across borders are not necessarily an everyday part of most of our lives, people tend to take them for granted. But, as Marius says, the EU is about so much more than roads and other projects it finances. I agree that the easiest, to, the easiest way to believe that good things are financed from the EU coffer is to, to see it on the ground. And uh, at least in the country I know best, uh, so Poland, uh, I cannot find almost any town, city or village without uh, EU sign on the things that were financed uh, thanks to the EU resources. Indeed, it is good to, to show people uh, tangible uh, results of, of, of EU spending. But on the other hand, again, I would repeat because in, I believe it's very, very important. We cannot say to people and present to them only things that are that are being financed uh, through the EU budget, because EU is much more than on only EU budget resources. EU is about single market, so freedom to operate uh, in all EU countries. Free, uh, EU is about uh, common currency, euro, external policy, data protection. EU is about Schengen and EU is again about this Erasmus uh, program. Those things, not all of them require financing and uh, we need to be aware that 
EU is not only about EU budget. Another thing we hear often in these discussions is not just about how much the EU costs a particular country, but how much it costs in relation to other countries. Ah, you mean the theory that the EU funding only helps poor EU countries? It's a fact. Richer countries contribute more to the budget. In 2017, nine countries, the so-called net contributors, contributed more than they got back from it, with Germany topping the list. That's right. However, what you also have to consider is that each country pays the same proportion of its national income to the EU budget, which means that the richer countries necessarily pay more and the poorer ones less. The other thing is that most of the EU budget goes to two main areas, agriculture and development of poorer areas of the EU. So it is to be expected that the less developed countries will receive more from the budget. I see. There is another reason as well. I talked to University of Luxembourg's economic historian, Elena Danescu, and the European Investment Bank's vice president, Stubb, about it. In 2017, nine of the 28 EU countries, the richest, paid more into the EU budget than they received back in EU funding. And these countries are Germany, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Austria, Finland, Sweden and Denmark. However, in return for the larger contribution, uh, these countries also enjoy the many benefits uh, that this money provides for all EU countries. Peace and stability, both within, within and around the EU security, better infrastructure, and the freedom to live, work, study, and travel anywhere in the, in the block. And also, the money spent in one EU country can be benefit uh, for another countries. For example, funding to protect the EU external borders goes only uh, to countries that border uh, non-member countries. In a, uh, for example, um, it's the situation of Croatia, of Greece, of Poland, of Hungary. Um, this is clearly benefits other countries too. The thinking inside the EU between the member states is a little bit like inside a welfare state. Everyone thinks that equality, equal distribution of income, fair distribution of income, solidarity is a good thing. That's why you pay tax. That's why you have progressive tax rates. So if you make a lot, you pay more tax. If you make less, you pay less tax. It's as simple as that. And the same principle applies for the EU. Uh, in the wonderful jargon of the EU, it's called cohesion. So the basic idea when the EU was founded... Um, in 1952 with the coal and steel community and onwards was to basically try to give some subsidies from the richer countries to the poorer countries and that way get more equality between the different regions. And of course, the thing has worked. I mean, look, um, take an example. Um, the Netherlands has always been a fairly rich country, a trading country. It was a hell of a lot better off after World War II than, for instance, southern Italy. Now, if you compare and contrast the two countries uh, and the two areas, the two regions, uh, the distribution of income and uh, wealth in those regions is much more equal than what it ever was. And the same has applied with Eastern and Central Europe. <laughs> it's all 1989, it was just behind the corner. And yet you look at the North, Central and Eastern European countries right now and the amounts uh, of wealth that they've been able to accumulate, not only because of grants, but because they're part of the European project. 
Now, for all those who are wondering what cohesion means, in a nutshell, it's about achieving equality among different regions of the EU. And it's not only equality the EU strives to achieve. The most important is there are three things. Uh, this is a peace, stability and prosperity. Too often those uh, three things uh, are taken for granted. Peace, uh, after uh, Second World War, for it is the longest period or one of the longest period in Europe without any major conflict. Uh, and uh, everyone or pretty much uh, everyone thinks that uh, it will be the case uh, for next decades or, or centuries. But uh, see at, at uh, what is happening in Eastern Ukraine and you will see that we should not take it for granted. Stability, uh, one of the main achievement of the EU is export of stability and prosperity. EU was created to help uh, initially six participating member states to um, cooperate together for a common benefit. And uh, through uh, all those years, it showed that uh, uh, with a single market and uh, and uh, European Union, we can we can all benefit from it. So those three things, I think, are valid for anyone who is still outside and would like to join the EU and uh, benefit from its membership. All of this sounds great. So why do some people still believe the EU is a waste of money? Ala, do you know that an average uh, EU citizen pays 187 euros per year towards the EU budget, less than the price of an average cup of coffee per day? I know that's relative. For some, that may be a lot of money, but it doesn't sound like so much for all of these benefits. My interviewees talked about two major reasons people believe the EU costs them too much, touching upon the topic of Brexit as well. First of all, disinformation. It is absolutely crucial that EU is seen and presented as something, uh, I would say, internal, not external. You should not uh, treat EU as a body that is imposing on you anything from abroad. And uh, if you hear or see anyone claiming that Brussels is, uh, is responsible for something negative, then uh, one should think, what do you mean by Brussels? Allow me not to judge British uh, citizens why they believed in what they saw on, on those big red buses. Being part of EU budget or uh, MFF negotiations in my previous job, I learned and I observed that this problem this particular problem started much earlier, at least in uh, 1984, with this famous phrase from Margaret Thatcher, I want my money back. So in general terms, if you present EU to your citizens only through the perspective of cash flow, then you cannot expect that the outcome of or the or the vision of the EU would be much different from the one presented on those buses. EU is not only about money, and uh, this is something that I would repeat again and again. 
it's because of fake news and scrupulous lies by people uh, who want to provide a message which is not true. I mean, we all know that Brexit, the referendum, was won on a complete false premise. All the stuff about how much we could put money into the NHS, etc., etc. I mean, it's just utter rubbish. But that's the world that we live in. There's plenty of information and there is almost a war of information. Uh, and the one who presents the case in a simple a uh, clear way usually wins at the end of the day and and this is of course a sad state of affairs but instead of lamenting about it i think it's very important to put forward a different type of a message the only problem is that the eu is quite often good news and good news uh, doesn't sell then there is the lack of education on the eu i would uh, say that uh, they are not really familiar with how the EU budget or EU finances work. But uh, the question is whether they do need to know it exactly or in details. If you compare it to the situation in which, uh, or you will ask the same question about how do they know how the national budgets work, and I would say not really maybe a bit more than than eu budget for me what is important is not the knowledge about technicalities but rather whether they agree with the eu priorities whether they agree to spend resources on those priorities and again to give you example it is not needed that Uh, European students know how the budget for Erasmus program is decided. What is important for them is that thanks to this program they can study abroad. As you heard from Mariusz, it's not even needed to know all the details on how the EU or its budget work. But what is important is to understand and agree with the priorities of the EU. Allow me to speak from personal experience. My friends and I have a tradition of playing a New Year's Eve quiz. Last year, I was the one writing the quiz. And since I was a journalist and now I work for the EU, I put in some questions on the EU and Brexit. Let's just say none of my friends really excel in this part of the quiz. Even though all of them are university educated and they were old enough to vote during the Croatian referendum on joining the EU. But for this podcast, I asked them, how did their life change since Croatia became a part of the EU? Being part of the European Union has made my life easier because I really like to travel and now I can travel and cross borders without my passport, just with my ID. Also, I don't have to think about visas or to pay visas uh, and because of that I can travel uh, cheaper and faster. Uh, some of my friends used this opportunity to, uh, to go and study in other European countries. Uh, some of them went found their new jobs there and uh, they're now equal to the citizens of those countries where they went. Since there are no more roaming charges, uh, they can always stay in contact with their friends with their friends and family wherever they go. A lot of things have been easier for us, especially compared to the older generations. For example, it's so much easier to get a job abroad these days without being looked down upon just because we are from a small country because we are a part of the EU now. Being a part of a group of 28 countries uh, helps providing safety and equality to all the citizens in the Union, which I, which wasn't the case before we joined. Also, EU maintains peace in Europe, which some might take for granted, unlike people in Croatia where war is not so a distant history. See? 
they might not know that much about the EU institutions, but they knew what was important. They knew that the EU changed their lives for the better. It has certainly made my life better. I'm very well aware I wouldn't even have the life I have today without the EU. I wouldn't have the friends I have, nor would I work here. So maybe in this case, and I cannot believe I'm going to say this as a former journalist, it's not enough just to follow the money. Because the EU is about so much more than roads built and grants given. Well, I wish more people looked at this topic from this perspective, especially in the current political climate. It's not all bad. Elena Danescu had an interesting point of view on that. Yes, this is a moment to talk about this topic and to change the paradigm of the European communication and maybe of the European policy because the, the, the communication is a reflection of this policy. The Brexit, uh, it's in the same time a crisis moment, but an, a huge opportunity. It's true. Last year's EU public opinion survey showed a growing appreciation for EU membership. 68% of Europeans said they believed their country has benefited from EU membership, the highest figure since 1983. Listen, Alar, nobody's saying the EU is perfect and that there is no room for improvements. But if we do believe in its values, we should all work on making it better. I know you call me a proud Croat at the beginning of this episode, but I'm a proud European as well. And there's no reason you cannot be both. Thank you, Nicola. Join us again next week when we will slay yet another monster under the bed. In the meantime, subscribe and review this podcast. And uh, get in touch with me on Twitter if you have a monster of your own. I'm at Allertankler. Thanks for listening and until next time.